0: Whoa. What a start for Brad Hughes 180 metres to go Looking good Oh, what a shot What a shot from Brad Hughes Oh my goodness, what a finish for Bradley
1: Hughes under 5 joins the lead An amazing victory for the second time Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters This time by five strokes
0: Without further ado, here's part two. Michael Clayton talks all things golf. So let's switch your playing career over to Europe. When did all that start?
1: Eighty two. I played. Uh, I played five tournaments. I went to. I went over there. We went to the belt for the Belfry. Frank Noblow and I. And I missed three Mondays in a row. Then I got in. I made a Monday in um, Germany. Made. Four cuts, played okay. Mr. Cut in Switzerland, came home. Couldn't be bothered going on Monday. So, and, and then I went back the next year. Um, I went home. I remember I finished 10th and 12th, the last two tournaments, to get to. I was 53rd on the mate list. And I said to old oh, Bill Hodge, he was a lovely guy, he was the scorer. I had 11,356 pounds. So. Should that be enough to make the top 60? Billy said, no problem. That'll make it easily. So I went home because I was desperate to go home. We'd been over there all year. It came to the last tournament. I'd gone to 57th. And this was a day when the Herald was still leading, the, the afternoon paper in Melbourne was, was still running. And grades and Steve Fraser and Glenn Wheatley and I were in the, in the Palace Hotel in Burke Road in Campbell. the Herald guy came in. This, this was how you found the scores out back then. The <laughs> The local no internet kid, then. The, 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 you know, the 13-year-old paperboy came into the pub in the afternoon hell like so by the hill, open it up. So I'm 57th on the main list going to the Portuguese Open last time of the year. 58, 59, 60 and 61 all finished in the top 10. And Chris Moody, who was 80th, finished second. So Peter Taravainen, who was 61st, finished, I think he finished 9th. And he didn't make the top 60. So I went out to 62nd, which was a. Design. Now it's back to Monday qualifying. So it was a horror story. Anyway, I go back the next year. We were good. For, Debbie and I were good friends with David and Linda Frost. We traveled together quite a bit. And I'd make, i made. So I was making the cut and playing. I couldn't take a week off. So I played well in St. Melian, where. Jamie Crowe played well. There's a blast in the past. Jamie played well. Uh, and Frosty and Linda were going to Porto Benus in Spain for a holiday. And they said, come for a holiday. I said, I can't, Frosty. I've got to, go to be and some play. Because I'm exempt. And if I take a week off, i have to go Monday qualify again. So I'm not going to do that. So I went to be and won the tournament. So it turned out to be a, the fact that I missed the top 60 probably meant that I won that tournament. which was. But, but that was the other two. And I actually thought, you know, in many ways it was a... Poor system because you, if you weren't exempt, you couldn't plan any schedule out. But in some ways, it was a great system because you, you if you played well and you made the cut, you kept playing, so you could play your way onto the tour by making cuts. You know, it gave a huge advantage to the guys who were in the top sixty because they could plan a proper schedule and play. But if you weren't good enough to make the top sixty, but you were good enough to play your way onto the tour, you you could do it by by making cuts.
0: Yeah, well, I think and a lot, lot of people forget yeah. that that that's all. Well, that was how it was when I first turned pro two in Australia.
1: Yeah,
0: On, that was Monday, exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah I Monday qualified for the Tassie Open, came seventh, made the cut, got onto the next one,
1: made the cut. Came so so 12th, Peter Leonard,
0: WA, and then I won. So I was away.
1: Yeah, I mean, when Peter Leonard got sick and he went and got that club job at Oakland, and he came back out to play in maybe ninety. Well, the Open was at Kingston Heath, ninety-five. Came back out to play in ninety five and he made the cut. Kept, you know, so he made, he came out this was five or six weeks before the open at Kingston Heath. Made the cut next week, he kept making the cuts. Gets to Kingston Heath, shot seventy six in the first round. I said, Oh, you'll be back at the club on Saturday, see you later, you're done. Shot sixty eight, made the cut again, finished eighth, got exempt. I think he got in the so he got in the Johnny Walker at Hope Island, where I think he finished second. Might have been the year after which exempted him into Europe. So he went to Europe, plays one of the European tour, plays one of the US tour and had a tremendous career. But it all started from a club pro coming out and only playing because he kept making the cut and he kept going. You know, now he wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, I mean, he, he'd have found a way onto the tour because he was such a good player, but he was a club pro who, who went out and he only kept going because he kept you know, making the cut and his assistant pro was back at the club selling Mars bars and seeing the field. like, where's Pete? Oh, he's made the cut again. He's out playing again. <laughs> you know? So that was how it worked. And it, was, it wasn't it was a bad system. It was tough, but it was... It was it, You know, if, if you played well, you, you, you kept going.
0: So I played in Europe. I, I went to Q School in 89, the end of, of Europe after turning pro. I got my... Came third at Q School. So I was playing in 1990 in Europe and came over there. And we spent a little bit of time together. But I want to talk about the... Um, you'll remember this because it was, you looked at me later on and said, Husey, what the hell have you done? I, I asked you if you needed a caddy and I offered a job to you for one of my friends to come over. And I think oh, yeah. the first one was, um, down France, the it, it Montpellier. Yeah, sorry, Montpellier it was Montpellier. Yeah. Tell us about that.
1: <laughs> Rob Williams says now a friend of mine. Really good guy. Turns up in a denim jacket with an earring. And I I, men and earrings, I don't, that, I don't get them. Anyway, um, so my first rule was, after about six holes, never ask a caddy with an earring the line of a putt. <laughs> and we were playing with Ross Drummond, and it took him, I don't know how many holes he played in the first round, the first round, but he kicked Ross Drummond's ball. So, so um, who gave him that nickname, Yeti, Bigfoot? Someone did. Yeah, one of the caddies. Anyway, Jared, the Jared, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, caddies were geniuses at giving um, players nicknames. They were amazing.
0: Yeah, he was walking you across know? the green, running, didn't realise the guy ball across, was yeah. there. Yeah, on, on the edge of the green, Buff kicked it.
1: Yeah, but um,
0: I think he still lives by that um, nickname too. He,
1: he does, yeah. So he lasted a few weeks before I fired him, but um, <laughs> he was good, a good guy, And a good player too. A really good player. So he, he came back. to him, So. He, was he a pro when he was out there, or did he turn pro after that?
0: No, after that, I believe. Uh, after that? Yeah, I don't honestly yeah. really remember. Yeah. He's been pro and back a couple of times, but he yeah. in for me a couple of times, and I thought he'd probably be all right for you, and then he turned yeah. up in denim and a leather jacket. and
1: yeah. Mind you, it was no, cold did. in
0: Montpellier that day.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did Ogle win that, week, that?
0: yeah. I think no, he, he did. did, yeah. Brett Ogle. That's yeah. exactly right. So, I mean, there was I- another. Well, Ogle, how about that? That was a
1: bizarre career, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, he was an outstanding player. Um, he an amazing player. Very, very good. Boy, he was good. Very great. good striker. Um, obviously I, got the, I with, the short stuff I played, in trouble early on. But I played
1: with him at the Vines one year. We teed off the, you know, the mice. We 10th, the, the first round, where everyone just hit, or most guys just hit, drive it, lay up short of the water, pitch it over the water. So he takes driver one on, he flies it, just short of the front of the green. Tim was back in the back left corner. So he, so he hits his two great shots just off the front of the, and he puts it off the green. So he misses. The, so he misses that green. The next green he missed was the ninth green the next day, where he drove it in the fairway bunker on the par five, wedged it out, pin was in the front left corner, and he hit the pin with a wedge and it bounced off the green. <laughs> so the first, in the first 27 holes, the only greens he missed were one where he basically putted off the green, and one where he wedged it the pin and bounced off the green. In between, he hit 25 greens straight.
0: He had that good flight too, that low shooter. Yeah,
1: beautiful. Yeah, he was a tremendous player. he and just uh, gone. I, I used like, to play Braden in, in no time. Yeah.
0: In the uh, interstate matches, he was one for New South Wales, and I was one. I'm sure if he ever listens to this, he'll he'll talk about it. But he, um, I was on the golf show with him and Paul Gow a couple of years ago, and I said to one of my mates, I said, if you watch the golf show tonight, you watch Ogle. He'll go off here. He'll bring it out. So he, yeah. he said it. He said, you know, Hugo, we played in all these interstate matches and you're the only guy that ever beat me. I said, that's all right, Brett. You, you know, don't hold a grudge 25 years later. He's still <laughs> thinking about it.
1: Yeah. But he was, yeah, it was, a, it was a book to be written about what happened too. What Whatever happened. But you'll need the players to be honest, wouldn't you? What happened? I got the chip. It was a, he had the chipping hips, didn't he? Ogle?
0: Yeah, he went and long he putter got? and then he, got, then he went left-handed chipping.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe the he had, had a long chipper. He had a long chipper, which was illegal, I think, wasn't it?
0: Oh, I did. he did and the he long had... one. Then maybe he went it... left-handed after that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was bizarre. Yeah, it's a bizarre phenomenon, the yips, isn't it? And, the, you know, my other theory, certainly in Melbourne, that no one ever had the yips when we were chipping off power, soft power surrounds. And when they changed all the courses to cooch all year, and you missed a green and you were chipping off I mean, every time you went over the back of the green, you were chipping off into the grain, tight cooch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it only took a few dust to start pull a 7-9 out and back into stance and, or putting it or hitting hybrids or three woods well, three back then. and you know, The only guys with the chipping, it the guys like Ray Jenner, who no one will ever heard of except for you and I, here, who grew up at Dalesford chipping off terrible eyes. <laughs> guys who chipped off terrible eyes often finished up with the but hips. But playing in Melbourne, you're chipping off beautiful soft power. Yeah, you because know, because if you hit it fat, it just came up ten feet short of the hole. Didn't just come back to your feet.
0: I got the chipping yips a little bit when I came over here and started exactly like you said, started playing on grain and softer yeah, softer yeah. grass. And you know, growing up in Melbourne, I had a little bit of a, a pinch action where I'd down cock a bit and pinch it off the hard pan. And yeah, same thing. Come over here and and I had no bounce on my wedge. I knew nothing about bounce. And I come over here is- and. Yeah. yeah, and I dug one in and thought, holy cow, what was that? And then next minute I'm fatting one, then I'm sculling one. And so I didn't know what I did. If I had it just changed to a wedge with more bounce, I might have been able to do it. But next minute later, I'm changing my whole technique and going around in circles. Well, no one ever
1: explained how to use the bounce because everyone everyone chipped like Terry Gale. Ball back into stance, shaft angled forward, hit down on it, hit it mm-hmm. low and spin it. No one ever put the ball up, had the shaft angled Level or back and, and, and use the bounce. No, no one ever played like that, which was the shot that the opposite of um, what happened to Monty at Wingfoot, the same thing happened to Ogilvy. You know, Lynchy said to Jeff, You're going to have to learn to use the bounce and play that, you know, because Jeff played this up. You know, Jeff again grew up playing on the sandbelt, ball back, shaft forward hit it down with the leading edge and pinch it and hit, hit, hit low spinners. And he went to America and Lynch, he said, you're going to have to learn to play with the ball up in the front of your stance with the shaft back and use the bounce. And Jess said, I couldn't do it. He said, practice, every day I'd go and practice. And I finally, you know, I finally got to where I was pretty good at it. And of course, what did he get at wing foot? That shot. And the last hole, he got the exact shot that Lynch, told him he needed to learn how to play. So now he's got this shot that three years before, he couldn't have played. So, so, so here's the game. You know, it throws on the very same hole, 15 minutes apart. It throws Monty the shot he's the king of and the genius of. It gives it to him and he said, "Here's the U.S. Open. Just hit your favorite shot." Coming along was Jeff. The group he was the group behind. So Jeff comes behind and he gets the shot that Lynchie's told him four, three years before. You're going to have to learn to play this shot because one day you're going to need it. That he couldn't play. And, and he gets it at the worst possible time. The last hole, of the US Open, now you've got to do it. And he pulls it off. It's a perfect pitch and wins the tournament. So, you know, that's what annoys me at people who say Ogilvy backed into that tournament. You know, Mickelson and Monty couldn't execute and couldn't think, they failed on both counts. Now, Mickelson couldn't hit the fairway because he couldn't execute the tee shot because he'd driven the thing all over the golf course all day and gotten away with it. So finally, under the pressure, he carves it 60 yards right into the bush, and now he can't think. Now he can't make the sensible decision, which is pitch it out 80 yards away. You're one of the greatest 80-yard players of all time, and if you don't get up and down, you're in a player for the goes one one tournament his whole life. Who are you going to back? in fact, I'd have backed Ogilvy to win because Jeff was a great player under under the stress, and I think he would have beaten Nicholson. But either way, we're never going to know that. But you know, so. Ogilvy was the only guy who deserved that tournament because he was the only guy when it came to winning it could could both execute and think. And Monty and Meggelson failed on both counts. Yeah. So who who deserved to win? Don't tell me that, you know, don't tell me you backed into it. You know, at some point, you have to man up and execute and think and, and handle the pressure. So he was the only guy who deserved to win that tournament. The others weren't even close to deserving to take that trophy. But but you know it's a funny game, and you know I, I remember uh, you know I hated under pressure short right to left putts, and I got one of the vines the tournament where I played with you the first two rounds. I had a four under four feet at the seventeenth hole. I was a shot ahead of Smithy, and I knew I was I I, I was using that belly that long putter, and I knew I was wasn't going to hold it. I was just really trying I was trying to hold it, but I knew I was probably going to miss it. And I, you know, I did, I hit the putt, I always hit, you know, a week under the hole left. The crowd was, oh, you know, the crowd was shocked that I missed it. it was like I said to my caddy, shit, that was a, like an, almost a certainty I was going to miss that. <laughs> and about, and a year later, I got the exact same putt, but shorter in the New Zealand Open. 71st hole, New Zealand Open, three and a half footer across the hill, right to left. Tricky putt, looked easy, but tricky. Tied for the lead with Lucas Parsons, never hit the hole, never hit the hole. You know, it was so. It's amazing how the game uncovers your weakness right when you least want it. You know, Just it's it's you know Doug Sanders. You know, just the game gave him that open. Here it is, Doug. You've got it. You know, you've, you've you know you finished second to Nicholas in 66. You know, you've you've lost majors by a shot, US Opens, and you know you've been right there. This is it. You're 60 yards off the green. You can take your forehand out and bumble along the ground to 15 feet and two putt, and you win. And he makes the wrong choice, jabs that sand wedge thirty five feet past. Then he does what all of us would do and leave it three and a half feet short. And then he you know, then he just chokes it. You know, he just chokes it. You know, it's a hard game. I mean, you know, it, it gave him that torment. It's just like, Doug, just same as Monty, just just do it. Just here it is. The golf gods are giving you the torment. It's giving you the major championship you deserve. All you gotta do is just fumble it in something you've done a thousand times before without even thinking about it.
0: And they, you can't do it.
1: Scott Hoke, you know, a little bit. That's why it's such a hard game. You know, it looks so easy, but boy, it's hard.
0: Even uh, Greg really, Norman comes really. to mind on Norman. something like Norman. that. Yep. You know, he, he lost yep. a lot of tournaments that he probably should have won. What, what do you think? What, what do you deal? I've got a theory I'll talk about in a minute. What do you, what do you think? Oh, I think it was
1: technique. I I think he had that big wide backswing that was, you know, I looked at his swing versus, I I, I remember Faldo saying about Greg once, he said, when I look at Greg's swing, I just see mistakes. And, you know, it had to be, you know, you put Faldo and Norman in the middle of the 18th fairway in a major championship. And Faldo took the paint off the flag five or six times at Muirfield twice, Augusta a couple of times, you know, he, he took the paint off the flag at, at, at Medina that year, where he didn't win with that three iron in 1990, when everyone made that long putt to beat Donald. And Greg, you know, in the grandstand at Wingfoot in the in the crowd at Augusta. And I think that scar tissue accumulates. You know, so, but, but I think that that wide right shot with a, with, a, with a middle iron, a four iron at Augusta, a six on at Wingfoot, had to be. Technique, because he can't. It can't have been any more nervous than Faldo was playing the same shot. You know, you know. Once your heart's in your mouth, your heart's in your mouth. And once your hands are shaking, your hands are shaking. So the only thing you've got to rely on is the technique. So, so I think that you know those that those scars accumulate to the point where you know he, he needs to shoot 39 or 38. It was might have been part 35 at Inverness to beat Tway, and he shoots. You know, he double bogeys. 11 from the middle of the fairway. You know, he shoots 40 on the back nine. Tway holds the bunker shot. He loses by two in the end. But I think if, you know, I think if Greg had got on the 18th and 86 at Augusta, hits the four-iron out of the green, goes into the playoff with Nicklaus and wins the playoff. Then when he gets there in 89, and he's got a four to tie, Feldo and Hoke, and Steve Williams says, it's a four-iron, Greg. But he's got the scar tissue from 86. I don't want it the four-iron because I know I've got to hit it easy. Give me the five-iron. I'm going to rip it. And Steve said to me later, he said, there was no way he could have got there with a five. And he smashed that shot. Yeah, I heard that story too. <laughs> he sm- and he, it was a four-iron all day. But he's got the scar tissue from 86 where he goes with the easy four-iron and, and he hits a bad shot. So he doesn't want to do that. So he, but, but that leads him to making the wrong choice three years later in 89. If he hits the right shot in 86 and beats Nicklaus in the playoff, then he probably hits the right shot. Then he takes the four-iron in, in 89 and he's in, and he's in the playoff. And, a, and, of course, who knows how the cards turn out. But if Hoke and Faldo both bogey, both, both bogey the 10th hole, so he's only got a part of the 10th at Augusta to win that playoff. But And if he's won those two Masters, there's no way he blows a five-shot lead in 96 to Faldo because he's already got two green jackets. It doesn't matter. It's just a triumphal procession. So, you know, it's, it's the accumulation of all the scar tissue that, you know, that you know. who knows how. I mean, you know, they're all hypotheticals, but, you know. So what's your theory on Greg? Well, it was if interesting because you,
0: you sort of touched on it there. You said, you know, he tried to hit the soft shot. I, I always felt, and I'm speaking from experience because I obviously tried to swing like him. I always felt if I tried to ease a club too much, I would hit it right, just like he did yeah. on those shots. And he yeah. he needed to be more aggressive on those shots. You know, if you, still, if you need a forearm, grip it down or, you know, still get through it. But he was very laxadaisical uh, on those swings. And obviously he had the little lateral slide and came underneath, face yeah. open. He wasn't releasing yeah. the club. And yeah. he, he, team, he seemed to do that a lot. But you'd see him, on the other hand, you know, be win a lot of tournaments from three or four back by just playing aggressive and going at everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, that would be the other, you know, the Woods necklace. I mean, Greg would, you know, that was one of the most, you know, and Farbury, for me, or I or criticised Greg. I mean, the guy was a tremendous player. But two majors for that talent and, you know, the, the number of great rounds he played, the number of top fives he had in, you know, in... in tournaments all over the world for for the 20 years of that career. Number of top fives, number of top threes, number of – what he win? 80 times?
0: Yeah, I believe so. At least, yeah, 88 or something.
1: Yeah, two majors was a – that was a terrible result for how much great golf he played. I mean, there's no way – you know, he should have won. I mean, no way he wasn't Watson or Player or Snead or – you know, in in terms of a truly historic figure in the game. But two majors was a – it was a terrible result for someone who was that good, I think. But I think you can put it down to... I, mean, I, went to, I remember going to Augusta. Greg, I actually went up with Greg. We played it. I was staying with Graves and he said, it was the week before Augusta. He said, I'm going up on Friday. You, the player practice Training. you want to come? I said, yeah, I'll come. Great. So we went up there, and Mac was there. Mac was there. Well, I hadn't seen since Europe in '82." And we walked around with Mac and I went talking. And Greg was the best player in the world at the time. He, he was the Open champion. He'd just lost to the 20 bunker shot at PGA. Um, I said to Mac, what do you make of this swing here? And he said, no one's ever played well after 35 years old swinging like that. He said, he'll get to 35 and he'll either, he'll either quit or change it. And Mitchell Spearman, you all remember it, did a swing analysis in the Age in the Sydney Morning Herald the 1990 Open at the Australian of Faldo and Norman. And reading between the lines, it was a critical analysis of Norman's swing. And Norman read that. And he was struggling. And Norman, Greg was 30, He was 36 years old, 35 years old. He was born in 1955, right? So he was, he was 35. And he, and he went to... Did he go to David first? I think he did go to... I think he went and saw Mitchell and then finished up with Butch. But... Mac's prediction that he'll get to 35, he won't. He'll he'll lose it, or he won't play as well as he has been. He'll either give up or he'll change it. He went and changed it, and and his swing was much different when he played that amazing round at St. George's in '93. That was a much different golf swing in '93 than it was in '86. So I thought there was a lot in Mac, you know, what, what Mac had said about no one's ever played well after. No one's ever played well. Swinging that way after thirty-five years old, so that was interesting. a profit it turned out to be pretty true. It turned out to be pretty true.
0: <laughs> so, out of today's players, obviously it's a totally different game. I don't watch a lot of golf on TV, except if some of my guys are on, I want to try and see them on how they're playing. But who do you um, who do you fancy out of today's players? Like, not just swing, but their game or attitude. You know, whatever. It's, we know it's very different to when we played.
1: Well, you got. To, I mean, I love watching Rory play. I mean, Rory won again today. You know, again, he, you know, four majors for him is not enough either. I mean, I mean, he's got to get to eight, otherwise he's disappointed, given how good he is and how well he when he plays, how beautifully he plays golf when he plays well. I mean, how can you go to Portrush and hit it out of bounds with an iron and miss the cut? Uh, I mean, I, and I get. Jeff did a podcast just before that, and he said the first hour the Open is going to be so difficult for Rory. If he can survive that first hour, he'll be all right. But he said it's going to be so hard for him to play that first hour. And it was. It turned out to be so true. But I love watching Rory play. I mean, Kepka's obviously great under the pressure. Um, Adam Scott's still beautiful to watch play. I like watching Matt Fitzpatrick play. Love that strong grip, never hooks it, swing. Um, I love watching some of the women play. I mean, Ann Van damme has got a great swing, but I love watching Lydia play when Lydia's playing well. Um, John and Lee Six, who won the US Open, and Jin Young-Ko, who won again today. I mean, you know, if, if a man could ever play as accurately as, some, as the best women do, they'd win every single week. <laughs> and they, you know, they hit. I mean, suo who, who I've helped, a bit, not, not helped, but mentored a little bit, she's, not in the top 60 or 70 in driving accuracy on the women's tour. And she hits 73% of the fairways. So, you know, someone, if someone on the men's tour could hit... That'd be number one. 80, 83% of fairways, which is what the top women do, and as many greens, that would dominate the tour. Of course, it's a completely different game, but you know, I think there's a lot to be learned from the way, you know, technically there are some terrific women players. I mean, i love watching So Young You play golf. I've watched her play a lot. And she's basically... 50% top 10s in her LBJ career. I mean, it's an amazing career. I mean, just, but uh, uh, my biggest criticism of the women's tour is that, you know, again, I think, what, what did Jin Young-Ko shoot today? Did we encounter 24 under or something? I well, mean, the courses are way too easy for as skillful as, as those players are. They're too, they're too short for as soft as they are. And the winning scores are way too low. I mean, I always thought Peter Thompson's measure of a well-set-up golf course was 468. He said 468. Should win professional golf tournaments, and you know the women have, you know, they shoot way too low because they're way too good technically to be playing courses that are six thousand seven hundred yards long. I mean, as, as going back to what we were talking about before, there are t- uh, statistically there are five women longer than Greg Norman was in 1985. So why are they still playing courses? They think they're stretched out at six thousand seven hundred yards. And that's you now Sue and I play at Metro. We play all. Every round we play pretty much, unless she wants to practice the short irons. We play off the back tees at seven thousand yards. She handles it fine. Sue, Nicholas, Colsarts, John Huggins and I played the prime for the World Cup at of Kingston He's off the back tees, seven thousand three hundred yards, and that was a bit long for her. But she had to pass me, and we could, but we could handle it. I mean, she could. You know, she got around in. Probably, probably shot seventy-three or seventy-four. So, seven thousand three hundred yards is probably too long. Well, well, that, that is too long. But seven thousand yards is not too long for, for for the women. And I think it underplays how technically good they are at golf. That you know, it, it, it diminishes their skills to play courses where twenty under par wins every week, and and they're six thousand seventy yards long. Because you know, they're easily good enough to play courses longer than that.
0: Yeah, we talked so, about this earlier. You know, the um, how we mentioned. The governing bodies and all that. How how do they miss all this? You know, they every report comes out and we, you know, they come out with the standard. You know, we don't see any change or we don't see this. But all these courses are obviously, St Andrews is across the fence now, and all these courses have been adding two, three hundred yards of gusters into the course next door. How can they say that there is no evidence or proof?
1: Well, I just I've had that discussion with Steve Otto who's the Steve Otto is the head of research and development at the RNA. And it's such a misnomer to look at, or, or, or such a do- distortion of the facts to say there's no increase. Well, there's no increase because you let the driver get to 466 or whatever it is five years ago, or however long they came out with a massive headed driver. And the huge leap was made with the Pro V. That ball's almost 20 years old. You know, the, you know, the horse bolted. When I was banging on about this and writing about it, as were. You know, Nicholas and Shaff, Shackleford and Weisskopf and everyone else 15 years ago. So it's so disingenuous to point to, well, there's no increase in what, from this year to last year? Well, of course there's not. The horse bolted 15 or 20 years ago. And we've been banging on about this for, for years. Of course, what's happened now is there are just more and more players who can swing the club at 125 miles an hour and create 180-mile-an-hour ball speed you know, what's next? I mean, you know, what's coming is what's scary is that, you know, my argument's always been that no matter what era you look at, going back to Ted Ray, the longest player in one generation has always become the norm in the next. So Ray became Sneed, who became Nicholas, who became Daly, who became Johnson, who became... Who, who became Johnson and Kepka. And Champ is the next one. And he's injured and hasn't played any good the last year. But he's shown what's possible.
0: Yeah, he's already taken a, it to an extra level.
1: And, and there's nothing surer that Cameron Champ, the distance he hits the ball, will be the norm in 10 years. Cause I, because I know, and, and you'll see it. And I, I watch your videos. You know, that little kid on the range yesterday who was 12 years or 13 years old, hitting those, those beautiful irons. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of 14-year-olds out there with, with teachers, with track men, and they're saying, you know, if you want to be a 2 standard player, 125 is minimum club head speed and, and 195 is going to be standard ball speed in 10 years' time. So, so what does that translate to in carry through the air? Well, 320, 330 yards, that's what it's going to be. So unless they regulate it, and i actually think that needs to happen it needs to get completely crazy before they've got to, before people come back you know 10 years ago they were saying if if there's another quantum leap we'll do something well the quantum leap is going to come came with chance the quantum leap and if history's going to prove itself and it's, it's been proving itself since Ted, you know the day the, the, the days of Ra- Vardin and ray Going, the, the norm in one, the, the freaking one generation becomes the norm in the next. So, why is it going to be any different? Because Cameron Champs already shown what's possible. And, and the long drive guys do show what's possible. I mean, those guys fly, what, 400? Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, so, it's inevitable someone's going to figure out how to dial that back to 360. And, and you don't need to be accurate anymore because you've got a wedge into every hole. I mean, you know, of the top 10 players in the world, how many are in the top 100 and driving accuracy on the tour? I mean, Xander Shoffley finished second today. And I saw Billy Horshaw was tweeting today saying, now, this is our goal should be narrow fairways and high rough to reward guys who drive the ball straight. I turned the TV on, and Zander is on the 17th tee, and Gary Coke, I think, or Roger Mulpey or whoever it was, said, he's hit three fairways today, and he's running second. I mean, don't give me the argument that Narrow fairways reward accurate drivers. The guy ran second hitting, and he hit the last two fairways. So he hit five fairways for the only for second. Complete. And, and of course, narrow fairways, going back to what Mackenzie, what we were talking about before, narrow fairways are a complete distortion of what, the, what golf was meant to be. But it's, you know, but it's the PJ Tour's single-minded answer to the distance problem is to have narrow fairways and long, rough, because that's what rewards straight driving. What it rewards straight driving. And it rewards long, inaccurate driving because you've only got wedges left. But what it does is take away any thought because all you're doing is hitting the ball where you're told to hit it. And given that no one can drive the ball accurately into a 30-yard wide gap if they're hitting it 300 yards, then it's just the only answer is bombs away. So you drive Zach Blair out of the game. And Zach Blair, what is well, Zach, is 280. And he's longer than Norman was.
0: That's right, yeah. And,
1: you know... I, I see you guys card back this year on the, on the what's that called, the Corn Ferry Tour. God, what a horrible name that is. I mean, you can't, yeah. Anyway, um, it feels embarrassing almost to say. You know, at least the web sounded, you know, reasonable. I mean, the Hogan, that should have always been the Hogan Tour. It should have been the Hogan Tour. Forever. Anyway, forever. Anyway, um, you know, Zach's back on the tour again next year. But, you know, you don't want to drive guys like that out. You don't want to drive Corey Pavin and Larry Nelson and Paul Runyon out of the game because they had incredible skills in other areas. So guys who are incredibly skillful in other areas get driven out, because can't, you can't compete from 60 yards behind Brooks Kepka or 50 yards behind, you can't beat those guys, it's impossible. I and saw given it. that... Every, I, I saw a stat and, and sorry. Yeah, and, and given that the driver head size, track man, modern teaching, and the modern ball, have given everyone the ability to drive the ball 320, or 330, or 310, then if you can only hit at 280, you can't compete. No matter how accurate you are, no matter how skillful you are with the five line, you can't beat them. But you could when you you were, you know, Norman and Nicholas were only at 280. That's right.
0: I saw a stat that Bernard Langer hits it like 30 yards further now than he did when he was 25 years ago.
1: Yeah, but he's a better athlete than he was when he was 20. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's – you know, Anne Van Damme has is, is got an amazing – I mean, if, if you want to see a technically beautiful swing, watch Anne Van Dam. But Elk did make a good point. I thought – he said, well, why are there 99 women ahead of her on the main list? But, um, you know, technically amazing. But tech is, uh, she's five yards longer than Norman was, according to the stats. I mean, I don't believe that if Anne Van Damme and Greg Norman, circa nine eighty-five. Throwing the first flight Royal Melbourne, she'd drive it five yards past him, but that's what the stats say she would do. And you look at that golf swing, I mean, it's like it's awfully powerful. And she's six foot, and she and, and I guess she swings the thing at a hundred and something miles an hour, 110 or 15 miles an hour. So that's how far it goes. But you're right. I mean, don't tell me she's a better, better athlete than Greg Norman because she's not.
0: All right, we can talk about all this all day, and I'm sure we will another time. But I want to now, obviously, we've gone from you as golfer as um, thoughtful pro or previous golfer that sort of now goes into your career with the equipment stuff. So as a course architect, how do you deal with all this? Well, you can't really.
1: I mean, Tom, I mean, the best architects of today, Gil Hans, Doak, Bill Korn, Ben Crenshaw, Tom doesn't, you know, their, their clients aren't interested in, golf courses but for pro tournaments so they're not building for pros they're, they're building for clients who want to build golf that's for members and that's going to be successful as a as public course golf so you know Tom's obviously redoing that course in Houston for the tour Gil did Rio where I, I caddied for Sua in Rio which was a tremendous golf course and so, who's building courses for the tour? Because no one wants to play them. No one wants to play an 8,000-yard golf course, which is barely long enough to replicate the clubs that Palmer was hitting in the 1969 US Open, which I've retweeted a hundred times. Now, Palmer averaged a four-iron second round of that 69-year. So, his average club was a four-iron. So it do was you...
0: Dean Beeman who was hitting Woods.
1: Yeah, he was hitting Woods, who finished second in the tournament. So, so how do you build a golf course? Where the best players, Kepka and Johnson and Rory, are averaging four irons. Well that's a six hundred yard hole, isn't it? Or well, it's certainly five hundred and seventy yards. So who wants to what 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 client wants to build a golf course that plays like that? Because no one wants to play it. So so how do you how do you mismanage the the, the, the distortions in the game? So so you could, you know, you can build it, I think, by building incredibly difficult short par 3s like the 7th at Bunburg or the 7th at Pebble Beach or you know the, 12th, the 8th at Troon or you know the, the 13th at Merion. you know, so you build an incredibly difficult short par 3 you build perplexing dangerous 300 yard par 4s if you screw up like the 10th at Royal Melbourne you double bug it like Crenshaw did then you build a bunch of 520-yard par. You almost don't build anything between 320 and 480. Then you build a bunch of 480-yard par fives, par fours, 490, 500. You, know, you build a bunch of those and make makes more greens. Then you build um, two 540-yard par fours. Then you build two 680-yard par fives. And you try and keep that within 7,400 yards. And then you put a couple of front tees in for the members. So you, you can manipulate that. I mean, those numbers won't add up probably, But you can manipulate the distances. So you create incredibly difficult short holes. You almost give up on holes that, are, that normal players did. You almost give up on the driver wedge 450-yard hole because you know, they're just all driver wedges. All right. So you completely – and it, it, would be, it would be interesting to see if someone, if someone ever tried to build that golf course but kept it under 7,700 yards, which no one wants to play and isn't commercially viable. So, you know, I suppose you could go and try and build that golf course. But who wants to build a golf course where there's no hole between 330 and 480? Because that's the <laughs> bread and butter goal for the average player. But they're, 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 That's an interesting you know, every,
0: concept. I've never thought of that. But,
1: but, but every hole between 350... And 450 is a driver wedge, as far as I can tell, for a PGA Tour player. It's just a different sort of wedge. So that that's where that. So or, or you just say we don't care about pro golf anymore, and I think that's the great danger for pro golf is, You know, who wants to? Who's going to turn on and watch it? Who wants to watch Medina? I mean, I don't get any sense of, you know, watching Justin Thomas play amazing golf to shoot 23 under par. In soft greens, where every hole seems to be a short line. I don't. Well, I'm not interested in watching that. All right. Now I, I, I do what a lot of people did not switch over once he was amateur on at the same time. At least the golf course is interesting. So I think it's a massive issue for the game, and it's, I think it's a massive issue for the tour. So I think guys like you and I just go, I'm not that interested in watching this stuff. It's not that interesting watching guys hit wedges on every hole. And sure, that's a cliched overreaction to because I'm sure you can. But two years ago when they went to Boston Golf Club and Gil built that hole they all complained about with the bunker in the middle of the fairway. That was the first hole all season, the first par four all season that Dustin Johnson had hit more than a 7-9 into a par four. That's
0: right, yeah. I remember that's that.
1: Ridiculous. So how can the USJ say there's no significant increase in the distance the ball's going? You've got the whole of the PJ Tour and there's one player, admittedly a great player who's a long hitter, it took him till September to hit a six-iron to a par four. Is that what the game is supposed to be? You know, the equipment regulations in the back of the rule book, you know, is that what you're trying to protect? I mean, it's, you know, it's, pre- it's a preposterous notion. It's absurd. So, you know, but the question is, so the answer is Tom Doak is working for, and, and Bill Craw and Ben Crenshaw, you know, they've built a whole bunch of great courses for Mike Kaiser, Sand Valley and Bandon and you know, all the great stuff that Kaiser's done. And influence at, at Bambougle the courses we did at Bambougle, you know, the owners of those places have no interest in holding professional golf tournaments. They've got no interest in building golf courses to be played by pros. They're selling retail golf to amateurs, which is beautiful golf. It's great golf. It's, you know, they're, they're some of the greatest golf courses ever built. But the great courses built in the twenties were built to test championship players, because the, the other level of course. You know, certainly Forest, which is one of the game's greatest courses, was built in the area of Hickory and it was built for amateur players, club members, and it was six thousand yards long. So the championship courses and Staindale, you know, Jones played the perfect round at Stingale. Thirty-three putts, thirty-three hits, you know, sixty-six, that was sent and when I mean, Sandel was six thousand five hundred yards. Kingston Heath in 1932 was six thousand eight hundred yards long. It was probably the longest course in the world. So the great courses were built to test first-class play, but the great courses of this era, the people who are building them are not building them to test first-class play. They're building them to build successful, as Mike Kaiser calls it, retail golf. So commercially, the world of is in a mess because the great developers of this era are not interested. Now, Mark Parson and Mike Kaiser, Richard Sattler, they aren't interested in building... They're not interested in testing first-class play because they understand that the people who make those courses successful, i.e. the retail golfer, aren't interested in playing 7,000 or 8,000-yard golf courses. So Kingston Heath at 6,800 yards in 1930, the equivalent equivalent of that is 8,000 yards now. That's not a commercially viable golf course for those guys. Mm -hmm. That's what the RNA and the USGA have created through their inaction. And the suggestion to bifurcate the game, so you create a ball that makes a 7,400-yard course, which is an acceptable length. If you go, That's what and Eath is now. And, and the members accept that and don't go back to the back teeth. If you can create a ball that does that by bifurcating the game, then you can drag the game back in somewhat close into the same space. But by having one ball and, one, and, a, and a stupid driver, you create two utterly different games. And people that argue against bifurcation because you, you create two games. The problem is we've got two games that bear no relationship to each other now. That's right. Which is the, <laughs> which is the game the retail golfer plays and the, and the, all these beautiful golf courses, you know, Sandhills, Sand Valley, Bambergle Band, and, you know, the, you know Rio for Gil. I mean, Gil Hansen's building a bunch. Of, I mean, this is the second golden era of golf course design. I think from Hills in 1933 until now, th- this will be judged as, you know, it was the second great era of golf course design. The first great era was about building courses to test first-class play. You know, and it created Shinnecock Hills, the National Golf Links, Oakmont, Wingfoot, all the great American championship courses. This era is creating all the great architectural treasures of the time. They're not built for championship players. None of them are. Chambers Bay, Erin Hills, okay. But... Mike Kaiser had no interest in building golf courses for pro golf. He's not interested in that. And, and they're going to be the treasured courses that people are going to look back and say, you know, Mike Kaiser was one of the most significant um, people in golf in the 20th and 21st centuries. Because he was the guy who paid for the great modern era of golf. And everyone followed him. Richard Sattler followed his lead and created Bambooga in Australia and Mark and you know, not that he followed Kaiser, but he did King's Barnes and Castle Stewart and, you know, Gill's out of the same camp. I mean, the course he built in Rio is brilliant. You know, he re-did Pinus number four. I mean, Gill's done some great golf courses. So, you know, it all, the whole thing ties in together. And it, it ties into pro golf being boring to watch, the ball going too far, the, the game at the top level being not interesting to watch, all the great championship courses in Australia... Now, the Victorian, the Australian opens at Victoria in 22 and Kingston Heath next year. I mean, and, and the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne this year. I mean, I love those. They're three of my favourite courses. In the world. We're, we're the Arctic's at two of them, Victoria and Kingston Heath. It just dismays me to watch the first at Kingston Heath, Thomas Peters drive it over the hill, playing with Nicholas Colsuch in the fourth in the World Cup. And Nicholas pitched it onto the green with a wedge from ninety yards away. I it mean, was a par. Mackenzie designed that hole off a tee that's thirty yards ahead of the tee they played off. It was a par five.
0: You know, John yeah, Rahm, Port Phillip yeah. uh, Open days. That was driver, three iron for me.
1: Yep, John Rahm. You know, people, people critics of the Stumey's hole complain about the that it's a blind hole. 7th, it's a, it was designed as a par five. It was a par five until the late sixties. Blind hole, no good blind hole. Second shot's blind, no bad hole. Not a, not a blind hole for John Rahm. He drove it on top of the hill. He can see the grain. <laughs> Pitched it on there from 70 yard, the yards away. So, you know, the great... The, and, and my view... I mean, everyone says the horse is bolted. They're never going to change it. My view is that at some point, the RNA and the USG are going to be forced to change it because it's going to... Because it, Champ is the next quantum leap... You've seen 14-year-old kids. You're teaching kids who, you know, if they want to be pros, the first thing you, the first thing you've got to tell them is 125 club head speed, 185 ball speed. That's, that's where you've got to be to compete. So, find the rest later. You know, find the rest later. So the ultimate manifestation is that is a tour full of guys who are find the ball the same distance Cam and now. And at some point, the USJ and the RNA can't hide behind that. They can't keep saying, we don't see any evidence that there's any marked increase. Well, no, there's not, because it all happened 15 years ago. And everyone told you from Nicholas Dean Beeman, Frank Hannigan, Jeff Shuckleford, Tom Doak, Bill Corr, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Weisskopf, Sebi Ballesteros, Nick Faldo, Nick, the list is as long as you're on. It's, you know, it's all, all there in Shucklewood's book, The Future of Golf. It's all there to, you know, Tom, we all warned you what was what was gonna happen, and it's happened, you know, and it's, and it's, gonna, it's gonna keep happening. So you need to do something. Otherwise, the absurdity of the old course at St. Andrews, the open there, is that three of the tees are on different golf courses and one of them is out of bounds. So the second tee is on the Himalayas putting course. The ninth tee is on the new course. I think the 14th tee I think, is on the Eden course. And the 17th tee is out of bounds. So the RNA clearly recognised the absurdity of it. So my view would be take the manufacturers to court. If you lose, pay what it costs you and counsel the British Open. Say, sorry, there is no British Open. Well, there is an Open Championship. This year there's no prize money to play for. You're playing for the trophies. And they'll all turn up. The players will all turn up. And see how that goes down with the PR folks at Titleist and Callaway and Tarnamade. Sorry, there's no prize money for the British Open this year, boys, because we lost all our money in the court case. So yeah, that goes down. And Augusta doing the same thing. And let's see if the players don't turn up. They'll all turn up.
0: So, so. you mentioned before, um, you know, you, you, did you start out doing mainly restoration work before you got into the full stuff? You, you mentioned you'd done work at Vic and Kingston Heath. Right. I saw Metro the other day too, and obviously Peninsula, Kingswood.
1: Yeah, our, our first job was at Victoria. And we were, it was largely a maintenance contract. The course wasn't in good shape. John Sloan and Bruce Grant, my two partners were probably the two best superintendents in Melbourne. And they hired us to get the course in decent shape, you know, the, the, the we, uh, which we did. But the first meeting we had, there's, there's a old black and white photo of the golf course in the 1930s where it was incredible. And we took the photo off the wall, brought it upstairs into the committee room and said, you know, put this back. This, this was incredible. And the bunkering had, pretty much been destroyed by them. You know, some of the most amazing Mackenzie bunkering had turned into round circles. And lots of them had been filled in. All, those, all the bunkers between 11 and 15 had been filled in and replaced by trees. So largely, our view was, which they were brave enough to, to, to take up on, was, let's put this golf course back. And we rebuilt the greens they opened in early this year. We re- closed the course for we closed it. Well, we closed the course basically for six months and rebuilt all the greens. And we you know it's largely back to the golf course it was in 1930. So if they'd never touched that golf course, there wouldn't have been any work there. Maybe there would have been work getting it in better shape. But it showed how you know it showed the the um, how dangerous dangerous it is to. And Mackenzie wrote about this to hand over golf courses to committees who weren't qualified to manage it and and preserve the greatness that they were given by the great architects. So restoration became a big deal because in the time between all those great courses were built, and you know the time when restoration became fashionable in the nineties, the committees had planted trees and fill bunkers in all over the world so and trees largely had had their way with golf courses so, so by the time that a, you know a, a sapling that was planted in 1950 had grown into a massive and oak tree and done what it had done in terms of completely changing the way the golf course played and looked so it's fallen upon our generation of architects to go back and take the trees out that have distorted the architecture and changed it and And restored all the bunkers, which some of it was how the bunkers looked, and some of it was how they, uh, some was how they, how they'd been altered in terms of filling them in, and some of them, some was about moving bunkers to make them more relevant for the modern ball. So all that stuff was in play at, King, at Victoria.
0: I remember at Kingston Heath, there on that twelfth hole, there you know up the left, that used to be scrub and everything. And next time I came back, it was the most beautiful bunker you've ever seen. Yeah, well, well, and that was Graham, there. Graham did that. Yeah,
1: well, Graham and all those short bunkers at fifteen at Kingston Heath, Graham put all those back. So, so Mackenzie bunkered that golf course. It was 12, I mean, 12 was just a wall of tea tree. Graham got the old photos out saw that there were old bunkers in there, peeled all the tea tree back, put all the bunkers back and completely transformed that hole. It, it turned an average looking path into an amazing hole. And then, of course, we, we moved that tea back. Boy, it's gone back 100 yards now. So, so that bunker that was in the middle of the ferry, we moved it, we brought it 30 yards closer to the tea for the 2000 open. So, so we moved the bunker 30 yards closer to the tea, moved the tea 60 yards back, for the two thousand open, put a little back tee in that Peter Thompson waters. That was that, that was seventy yards back. And I said, well, "What? You know, I, th- I thought where Thompson wanted the tee was, it was a stupid spot to put the tee, because this was pre-Pro V. So he insisted on the tee. They played off that tee. We grew it over for three years, and then the Pro V came in. So we so we mowed it back down and put that back into play, and we've just built another tee thirty yards behind that. <laughs> so, you know, so." Crazy. Anyway, yeah, so, so lots of the work because we've primarily done work in Australia, most of our work has been on the on the old courses. Like Caronup, the Grange, Victoria, the Lakes. Royal Queensland building a new golf course because they, they built an, an they built another bridge there. You probably you probably remember playing there when there was only one bridge over there. Mm-hmm. Those those outer holes. Well, they built another bridge, so they lost those holes out the back. So we built them a new golf course. So yeah, but I mean most of our work's been on the the great old clubs in Australia really.
0: And how do you go about building a brand new venue like when you I know you evolved in Bamboogle and helped design one of the courses there. How do you, how do you do that when you just stand there and look out and there's there is no golf, like there's bushes, sand hills and how do you how do you plan a route for the course?
1: Well, we have with Tom Doug. Tom would firstly do a plan in America off a of topographical map to see how close he gets to what might be a final routing. And sometimes he gets close, sometimes he doesn't. But the, the basically the clubhouse position was the clubhouse could only go in one place. And the routing was pretty much set because, it was, c- because you went out and back to a far point either side of the clubhouse. So St Andrews starts in one point and goes out and comes back to that point. The clubhouse at Barnbuckle, rather than being at one end of a golf course, because in Scotland, they would start in the town, play out to the far point and come back to the town. Van Boogel was different and the clubhouse was in the middle. So it was two halves of going out and coming back. So the routing was, so the, the path the holes followed was pretty much set by the ground. So it was just a matter of how you broke that ground up into 18 separate holes, really, that, that flowed. The original routing, Tom had the back nine playing from essentially somewhere near the 18th green back up the 18th fairway, and it was reversed. And you came back down the 11th and the 10th holes. That was 17-18 on his original routing. And Mike Kaiser came out and said, no, all wrong. You've got to finish on the ocean, which was absolutely the right decision. So 17-18 became 10-11, and 10-11 became – well, not exactly, but became – well, certainly 10 became 18. So, I mean, Bill Cor, I think, has got Bill Cor does it by walking the second course at Barnboogle, He just walked that land until it. He said it felt like golf. It's Sandhills, which is the best. Well, certainly the first great modern course of this era. I played there with Crenshaw, and it's, you know, I think they had thousand acres, maybe more. He said, Ben said, it took us an it took us a year to find the first tee. Because the, the clubhouse at San Andreas is about, look, it's probably a kilometre from the first tee. So, so it, took us a, it took us a year to find the first tee. Because everywhere you look, it looks like a perfect golf hole. And once we'd found the first hole, we could have gone in any one of three directions. So we picked the second hole. And then we could have gone in any one of two directions. So And we picked the third hole, which is a part three. And then once we'd done that, it was pretty much set in train where we went. So, you know, there are lots of ways to route golf courses, but it's the most important thing, you know, is to get the routing right. And working on old courses or established courses, you're always dealing with, and the best courses, you, you rarely deal with a routing mistake. But working on courses that are less good, you're always dealing with a, you know, you're, or you're often dealing with a fundamental routing mistake. So at Rosanna, for example, you remember the first hole at Rosanna? Yes. Terrible hole, awful hole. You know, you, you I mean, and, and perhaps Morecambe didn't have enough land to do anything different, but you would have done all you could never to build built that hole. It was such a bad hole. But, it, you know, what followed on from there was actually pretty good. But it finished up with that terrible ninth hole, which we fixed coming back up the hill to the clubhouse. So the first mistake was the clubhouse on top of the hill. So very often, if you have a clubhouse on top of the hill, you've got a problem with certainly at least one and probably four of 1, 9, 10 and 18 if you've got returning 9. So, so you know, where you won that Western Australian Open at Lake Karen up, clubhouse on top of the hill, the first top was pretty good. But 9 was a straight back up the hill, 10's back straight back down the hill. And 18, you've got that awful T-shirt up over the hill. All, all as a result of where the clubhouse is. And Caranups a terrific course, but Russell told them to put the clubhouse down the bottom of the hill, but they didn't want to do that. So you're always fighting. You're all, yeah. So uh, well, uh, and it was a shorter drive into the clubhouse. And in the days before air conditioning, there was a seaside breeze up on top of the hill. So it was, it was probably you know there was less wind down the bottom where Russell wanted the clubhouse. So you're always dealing with. You're often dealing with routing problems, but the great golf courses are routed perfectly. But where the clubhouse was at Augusta, mandated the tenth old plant, which, which was the old first, plunging down that hill, and 18, and 18 which was a ninth, coming back up that massive steep hill. You so the routing's critical. And on, and on courses that are difficult to work with, or, you know, courses where it's difficult to make really good, you're always dealing with dealing with the mistakes that the original architect made with the routing. But it's, um, you know, it's... it's um, and, and working on the best old clubs in Australia that all have tournaments, you, you've always got to keep in mind not just the members and how the course plays with them, but how's this course going to play in the tournament? So you're always worried about back tees and stretching them out and... Which is something that you know a place like Swanley Forest never has to worry about because the members don't care because, because it's not a championship course. You know, it's just a beautiful course. Plays, you know, playing it. I mean, fitchy played there last week. He said that they've stretched it out to six thousand five hundred yards, which is the perfect golf course for ninety percent of people who play golf. Probably ninety-five percent of people who play golf. So, you know, but when you're dealing with courses that in Australia that are the main championship courses in each city, then you've got to be mindful of how they play for the best players.
0: So has has your attitude changed, you know, from being a player to now? You see things differently, obviously, and as no, far I, as design no, and course design. No, I
1: don't think it does because I, you know, I, I grew up at Easton, which was, you know, not the best course in Melbourne, but it was a great course to learn to play golf on. But then I went to Metro. But I first saw Royal Melbourne in '72 and first played it in '74. I was always interested in design, and I knew that I didn't know why Royal Melbourne was great, but I knew it was great. And I started playing it, and I figured out why it was great. And I understood that width was an important part of making great golf. Great golf was never about narrow. Great golf was. I mean, and there's, and there's always a golf course that smashes the rule. And, I've never played Oakmont, but Oakmont's a penal narrow golf course. It's a great course. But the great courses have all got space and width, and they're interesting and fun to play. So I understood that. And even though I was a really straight hitter, I always liked wide courses, playing wide courses, because they almost by definition they were more interesting. Certainly what good what good wide courses. Good wide golf was always more fun than narrow golf. But I think that the trap that most Pros fall into is designing courses that suit their games. And I'm sure in what you do, it's the trap that good players who teach fall into is they teach what works for them. So, you know, the early criticism of Jack, Nicholas, and when you played the old, you know, the, the, his, his first version of the Australian was that it really suited a guy you who know, two arm with a big high fade. So, you know, so Jack built courses that suited his eye that he'd like to play without yet Mackenzie, who was a bad player, understood St Andrews and built St Andrews. So guys who are not necessarily good players to understand great technique work out not what works for them but what works. So Mackenzie worked out from St Andrews what worked. And he translated that style of play to Augusta and Cypress Point and Royal Melbourne and Crystal Downs and the Valley Club, causes that all look quite different from each other, but he captured the elements of the questions they asked. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and he, do you think that's yeah. why Crenshaw's a yeah. uh, good designer because yeah. he, he was involved in history, he loved the history of golf and he took those. Love history,
1: yeah. And he got, as Mackenzie did in Australia, Mick Morecambe was a great constructor. So he got Bill Corr, who I think is a great architect in his own right but who knew what beautiful golf courses looked like? And he hired guys who are amazing shapers, who um, know how to translate that vision into beautiful looking golf as well. So, you know, golf pros, and Crenshaw is the best professional player, modern architect, and, and Bill, his partner, know how to put beautiful looking golf on the ground. And they do it also because they take on very little work they take on course on great sites and they talk on clients who understand what they want to build. So there's a famous story about um, Bill talking to a very famous American man who hi- wanted to hire him to build a golf course. <clears throat> and after hearing the spiel from the very famous man's, um Underling, Bill said, look, I'd really like to build a course for Mr. Mr. Trump, but the answer is no. Thank you. We appreciate your asking, but the answer is no. And this guy couldn't believe it. How can, I, how can I go back to Mr. Trump and tell him you don't want to build a golf course? And Bill said, he said, well, put it this way. He said, he's going to hate what we want to build, and we're going to hate what he wants us to build, so it's never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, so they work for clients who understand what they build, who want what they build, who have great pieces of land, and um, that's what it takes. So you know, so, And they're not interested in building a hundred golf courses, and of course the success is self-perpetuating because each course they build only enhances their reputation, then it makes the next guy who wants to build a great golf course more eager to hire them. And you know, so they can be very selective in who they work with and, and the bits of land they work on, which doesn't mean to say they can't build a great golf course on a bit of land that gives them nothing because I've been to Talking Stick in Arizona, which is a flat desert site near Scottsdale, and they built two brilliantly strategic golf courses on, on, a, on a site that gave them nothing. So, you know, people that say, uh, you know, that they can only play in sandboxes. Well, go to go to Talking Stick and see what a great job it you know, is It's probably, well, it's, it's certainly not their best golf because their best golfers, best golfers, are incredible. But it showed that they could build amazing golf on, on, on a site that gave them nothing.
0: Without putting so, houses around it.
1: Without putting houses around it. yep. I think it was. I think it was on in Indian Reservation. So it was a the hotel there, I think I might be wrong about that, but. It gave them nothing, and they built beautiful bunkers. They built really interesting strategic holes, a great set of greens, you know, a great variety of golf, and they captured you know, what Mackenzie got. They captured how do, how do I ask interesting questions, and what, and what we do is, is how do we ask great players interesting, interesting questions, and, and, and your job is to teach a, a great player how to recognise the question? What is the question? And give me the skills, give me the mental and physical skills to answer it. And and and, and not just 30-yard wide fairways lined by high grass. Because that's not, you know, I mean, you can teach someone how to do that. But I'm sure what you want to do is teach guys to play golf like Seve. You know, with imagination and how to shape the ball and hit the ball high and low and not just a one-dimensional style of play that is what the PJ Tour week, not every week, but you know—generally encourages with their week-to-week setup.
0: Yeah, I agree, hundred you know,
1: percent. So they go to Trinity Forest and they criticise it because there are bunkers in the middle of the fairway and there are wild greens and blind shots and you can—you know—the common criticism: you can drive it anywhere. Which I, I hate that criticism because of what, you know that, that's the knock on Royal Queensland. But to play the course effectively and well, you can't drive it anywhere. You know, to, to get to the difficult flags, you've got to be at least on the right half of the hole. <clears throat> and, and if we've done our job well, we've built a green that's hard to, that, that where you can put a flag on that makes it difficult to get to from the wrong side. But to get to the proper side of the fairway, you've got to challenge, a hazard. Mm. So, And that's the essence of St Andrews. That's why St Andrews is the best course in the world because you know, that's, yeah, that, that's what it does because it's got the benefit of the wind and the hard, hard, bouncy ground. When America's got a terrible, again, this is a rash generalisation, but America's got a terrible climate for golf. You know, there's, you know, there's, often there's not that much wind. You, know, you go to Chicago in August, it's hot. To keep the bent grass, you've got to water it so it gets soft. So the ball doesn't bounce around like it does in Australia or in Britain. So it's you know it's tricky to get it right, but yeah, you know, again, it you know it falls back to the RNA and the USGA to you know look at look at that little rule in the, in the back of the rule book that says it's our job to maintain the skill it takes to play the game and and, and, and to re, and, and to respect and restore regain the integrity of the great old golf courses rather than having an turned to pitch and putt affairs.
0: <laughs> All right. So we'll finish up pretty soon. We've gone on for a long time. It's been awesome, but I want to finish up with a couple of questions and some of these, yeah. this one is probably already half answered, but you know, let's say you are in charge. What, what would the plan objective and, Hopefully, your long term legacy be if you're in charge of golf. If someone said, Hey, Mike Clayton, you are commissioner of golf, RNA, USGA, you're the man, what would you do and hope to achieve from it? Well, I would, we've, you know, we've already answered the
1: equipment thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, for top level players, I'd reduce the size of the head of the driver and I would mount out a ball that flies around the distance that the ball went before the Pro-V. So, you know, go back and recreate the driving distance of Nicholas and Norman's era. And Snead, which I thought the balance was pretty good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think a bigger question for the game is clubs all around the world, how do clubs manage the, the reluctance of people to join clubs, you know, fewer people are joining clubs, how do you manage the future of struggling clubs? Is it to sell them and turn them into housing lots like Easton did and Kingswood did? Um, is it to turn them into 12-hole golf courses and, and, and to be able to sell off parts of them to kind of maintain a feasible club that's still got you know, money to survive? Do governments, you know, how do governments manage, manage the, certainly in Australia, How do government manage manage the land rezoning of clubs that aren't viable anymore? Um, What's the future of public golf? You know, is it Winter Park, which I've never seen in Florida, Sweetens Cove? You know, great little nine-hole courses, you know, that run for not much money? Is it... um, The great old clubs in America are all going to be fine. You know, and in Australia and in Britain, it's the next level down is... How does the game handle the demise of, not the demise, but the the falling off in interest of, you know, as fewer and fewer people people join clubs? They cost too much to join. The overhead's too high. The clubhouse is too big. Are the the maintenance standards expected by members too high? You know, the maintenance costs too much. Um, I think they're all questions that the game's going to have to answer in the next 100 years. Because, you know, it's um, clubs that, yeah, you know, but certainly in Melbourne, there's an over there's, a, there's a oversupply of golf courses in the southeast of the city. And, and they're, they're tremendous courses. You know, place like Spring Valley, Keys, West Southern. You know, what, what's their future? Huntingdale, Yarra Yarra, you know, uh, Commonwealth. My old track, Rossdale. R- 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, to me, there's only... only well, yeah, yeah. So, so Ross does almost a third tier course again. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 what's the future of those golf courses? Do they go to a developer and say, That's, you know, knowing their land's worth $100 million, do they bail out and go and merge with other clubs, or do they turn them into 12 hole courses, nine hole courses? Does the government say you can't do this anymore? You can't do what Eastern and Kingswood did? So, they're all going to be interesting questions, and there'll be right and wrong answers for it. Some of them. I mean, does rather than Eastern selling up and going and building a new course, do you, do they go and merge with it with another struggling club? So it's um, you know, it's interesting. And they I don't think they're they're difficult questions, but they're important questions, and they don't have, and they can, they can be good questions to, it, 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 if they're answered properly. And not the, and, and there isn't one answer to suit every every club and every course but if they're answered properly in every well golf can be a better game because you can invest money from gain through the selling of poor golf or unviable golf and and create better golf if it's done well but as Tom Doak said to me there was a club here that did that and he And he said, every club anywhere in the world that's done what they've done, i.e. sell a golf course for a lot of money and relocate, they always mess it up because there are so many difficult decisions to make. You've got to pick pick the right site. You've got to pick the right architect. You've got to build the right number of holes. You've got to spend the right amount of money. You've got to build the right clubhouse. If you screw up any one of those five or six decisions, you're in trouble. So Croydon, where Aaron Baddeley played, Croydon was, I mean, uh, not a bad course, but boundary problems. Someone offered them $40 million for it. They went and built a new golf course. They built too many holes. The course is too difficult. They probably they spent too much money in the clubhouse. Uh, they lasted, how long did they last? They lasted, I think, 15 years before the Chinese bought them and leased the club back to the members. So there were cautionary tales in letting committees handle that massive decision without proper advice. And the you know, the best bit of advice is to, I mean, Darius Oliver is the guy that does this sort of work back here. Hire someone who's not conflicted who can point you in the direction of the proper architect for that project so you don't make the first mistake which is to pick the wrong architect. And then hire someone who's not conflicted like Darius who can tell you about what the quality of land you've got, what sort what measure of golf course you can expect from, from that piece of land. So so you know, so when you go to a bit of land, don't get conned by an architect and tell you he can build you a top 10 course in the city, when the reality is that a top 20 course would be a great result. You know, so you need someone independent and wise who can tell you the truth about what you've got and what you're contemplating on doing and point you in the right direction. So they're going to be the critical decisions that are going to be made. But, of course, an arc, you know, a club hires an architect who bullshits them about how great the golf course he's, he can build is because he's got to bullshit them in order to win the job over the other, t- other, over the other architects who are also bullshitting them about what they're going to get. So they just sold a whole lot of bullshit. And they finished up spending their money and getting a golf course that, Instead of being in the top five that they were promised, is barely in the top 20 or top 25 or top 30. So, you know, they're the questions golf's gonna have to, golf's gonna need, need wise heads, and it's gonna need wise administrative heads, wise heads in government. And, we're, you know, in Victoria, we're lucky that the Premier, Daniel Andrews, loves golf, understands it. Remember Kingston Heath, when he goes to America, he goes and plays. The National Golf Links and Fisher's Island, and he completely gets golf. So he, he understands, because I've drummed them into him, how important these questions are going to be. But not every city in the world is lucky enough to have a state premier who understands golf architecture and reads about it. So it's going to need great governments, great administration, great independent people to hand out good advice, and it needs great architects. And if all those things fall into place, then golf can be in a great place because it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is Mackenzie's point about it's critical. People give up golf without knowing why. His prophecy was, or his principle was, it's because golf is boring and and the golf courses are boring and people give up golf because they don't understand that what they're playing is a very poor version of what the game at St. Andrews is. So all those things, you know, for the game to be popular for another hundred years, it, it takes all that wisdom wisdom combined. And it takes wise committees who understand they don't know who understand they don't know what they don't know. And most of them don't know much. And the really good ones understand what they don't know. And I've watched Victoria and Kingston Heath, which are the two Two clubs in Melbourne who've managed the, the, the restoration and transition of those courses better than ever. And both those committees understood what they didn't know. And they handed over the responsibility of managing their golf to people who did know. And Graham Grant was the guy who you know put Kenksneath on the right path. And I, and I think John Bruce and I did that at Victoria. And 20 years later, Ken's needs one of the second or third or fourth best course in the country. And Victoria, in the face of all the great new golf that's been built in Australia, has held its position in in the top 10. And that's only because they've been run by wise men. And the the clubs that have fallen down the rankings have made critical mistakes at critical junctures because they didn't know what they were dealing with. That's the same worldwide. Yeah, you know, it's it's the same all over the world. So it it takes wise men to to run golf. So uh, I'm I'm going to harp on the point, but I'll say it one more time wise men in government, wise men in administration, and wise committees, and good architecture, which which means, you know, you you couldn't meet wiser men than Bill Corr, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Duck, Gil Hans, Mike DeVries, you know, guys who really get golf. They really get it, you know. So that's the future of the game for the next, and if and if we screw it up, the golf will be in horrible. The game, the game will be in horrible shape in 100 years. But if we get it right, it'll it'll be better than ever. Better than ever. But you know, it's you know the future's in the, in the hands of critical people who are going to have to make good decisions. But you've got to understand the game, and to understand the game. There are two books to read. The Spirit of St Andrews, Alistair McKenzie, 1934, and The Future of Golf, Jeff Shackelford, 1994. And if, you, if anyone who's, who's listening to this is involved in, it, in any one of the, those four areas, read those two books and you'll get it. But if you don't read them, you'll never get it. You'll never get it. And don't
0: read them once. Read them 20 times. <laughs> All right, That's a perfect point to stop. That's a great final note there, Clates. I loved speaking to you, everything, as usual. All right. Can't wait to see you again when we get back to Oz, go have a game at the revamped Peninsula Kingswood.
1: Yeah, that'll be great. And I'll be over next year, hopefully. So it'll be great to catch up over there. But I must catch up with Dylan Pruitt, who Dylan and I travelled with Fran in Europe uh, back in the 90s, 1991. 1991. And I know Dylan lives in Greenville, where you are. So so I would love to see him again. Yeah, I'd love to see that again, so it would be great to do that.
0: All right, we'll get it all set up. Beautiful. Okay, thanks, mate. Thanks,
1: mate. Great, to, loved it. great to talk. Speak Perfect. to you soon. Thanks, mate.
0: The golfing world is really gaining steam at voicing their opinion about the so-called golf recession. Many differing viewpoints have been put forward over the years, why participation is down and why golf courses have closed and are being filled in by housing complexes. There are no better arguments for why these travesties are occurring than what Mike Clayton puts forward in all these articles and podcasts. And it really is about time the solid voices of reason begin to be listened to by the Gulf's governing bodies. Spreading the word is the only way this ship can be righted. You can follow Clayton's on Twitter at Michael MichaelClayto15. That's Michael Clayton without the N, 1-5 at the end, to add your voice to the conversation. If you care about golf, then this is an important topic, and any extra voices added to the conversation are the only way this game can be rectified and made right again. Thanks for listening, and great golfing to you all.